Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just wonderful. It's power to change us from the inside out. And 500 years ago, Martin Luther discovered that great power and assurance and peace for his own anxious soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ is just wonderful for individual believers. But the gospel of Jesus Christ as well is just marvellous for reforming churches. Churches that were created by the word can be redeemed and remade by the word, the gospel of Christ. Churches can find new clarity for their own focus and priorities and vision when they discover the power of the gospel. John Calvin in Geneva restructured his church around a new clarity that the gospel brought to his own ministry. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just power for individuals or clarity for churches. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so awesome that it's also hope for the nations. The gospel can change whole countries, whole territories in giving to the world around us a model for reconciliation or encouragement to be generous to the poor or inspiration for justice and care. 500 years ago, the gospel changed a whole kingdom, the kingdom of England, not just Martin Luther's heart or John Calvin's church, but a whole country through the power of the gospel was transformed. For the gospel of Jesus Christ provides us with power and clarity for our churches and hope for our nation. This was what the Reformation was about, providing fresh gospel clarity for individuals and churches and countries. Where in the late medieval world, the gospel had been dulled and sullied and confused, the Reformation tried to polish the gospel so that it might sparkle again. We've been preaching our way through the great solas, those only statements, those exclusionary formulae in these couple of weeks, preparing ourselves for celebrating the Reformation in the year ahead. But of course, we're not merely trying to understand what grace alone means theologically or what faith alone means theologically. We're trying to understand again what these solas mean so that the gospel in our own day can be polished with these beautiful rags. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory alone are the various strategies that we can develop so that through each of them the gospel is polished and seen to be more and more brilliant, glorious and powerful. So what feature of the gospel does Luke want us to see polished from chapter 7 this morning? 
Well, in this story, we learn that Jesus has just finished preaching. He's preached a kind of summary version of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. He'd finished saying these things to all the people who were listening and he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. This centurion, probably a Roman, certainly an outsider, has shown his great character by caring for his very ill and highly valued servant. He wants him well. So he sends some elders from amongst the Jews to Jesus to see if this preacher might also heal him. He's desperate. He loves this servant. He wants him well. The centurion, verse 3, heard of Jesus, sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So when these emissaries, when these Jewish elders came to Jesus in verse 4, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Indeed, if you visit Capernaum today, you can see the remains of the synagogue that the centurion helped finance. The emissaries, the Jews who come to Jesus, talk up the man's worthiness. He's loved the nation and he's been a sponsor for building the synagogue. But they're having to talk up his worthiness, not because he was perfect, but because he was an outsider. He was wealthy and Jesus, of course, was not. He was a soldier. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He was a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. They have to talk up this man's worthiness because he's an outsider. He doesn't naturally deserve the kinds of gifts that Jesus wants to give. So will Jesus heal the servant? Will the entreaty of the Jewish elders be enough? Well, in verse 6, Jesus went with them. But he was not far from the house, the centurion's house, when the centurion sent another delegation, some more uh, emissaries, some friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. The surprise isn't that Jesus turns to heal the centurion's servant. The surprise is that when Jesus is on his way, the centurion decides to stop him. Don't come here. I don't deserve this. Don't trouble yourself. I'm a Gentile. How could you possibly come under my roof? Or verse 7, that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you and sent others to speak on my behalf. But, verse 8, the, the centurion is told, uh, it passes on these words, 
say the word and my servant will be healed. I believe that even your word, Jesus, if you don't come here, is powerful enough to provide healing for my dearly loved servant. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Even without seeing you, he can benefit from your words. For in verse 8, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. He, he is a man who understands hierarchy and authority. And he's a man who understands that words are enough. He can command and people at his word will obey. He's just sent two emissaries, two groups of communicators to Jesus and they've obeyed him. He doesn't just send once, but twice. He understands that a word is powerful and enough. Well, will Jesus heal? How will Jesus heal? We read on in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Only a couple of times in the Gospels do we learn that Jesus is amazed by someone. Here he's amazed by an outsider, a soldier, a centurion, a Gentile, a wealthy man. But when Jesus heard this, he turns to the crowds, uses this as a teaching opportunity and says, I tell you, I haven't found such great faith even in Israel. There might have been some faith in Israel, but not such great faith in Israel. What the whole story has been describing is what is faith? Then the men who had been sent, verse 10, returned to the house and they found the servant well. The servant is healed. We assume Jesus said something, but that's not even recounted because the point isn't so much what Jesus does with this individual servant, but the power of these words, or indeed the trust that we should have in the power of Jesus' words. Despite the centurion's wealth, his occupation, his nationality, despite what some might have thought his, was his worthiness, actually Jesus commends not his character, but his trust. Doesn't speak of his citizenship or his CV, it's the centurion's faith alone which Jesus wants us to learn about, which Jesus commends. Friends, what is faith? Years ago, I was leading a Bible study at Newman College down the road at Melbourne University. Newman College is a Roman Catholic college. And I remember one woman in a Bible study from Romans turned to me after the study was over and she said, Reese, you're just really lucky because you've got faith and I don't. As if faith is 
a commodity that you can wrangle or buy or somehow acquire. And if you've got it, you've got it. And if you don't, you don't. And never the twain shall meet. Is that what faith is? A commodity that you have or you don't? Or you watch Q&A if you've got the energy on the ABC. <laughs> And you hear those mocking tones of angry atheists who speak of people of faith as if they're simpletons. They're credulous. They, they just resort to faith when reason runs out. Is that what faith is? Just simple credulity for the ignorant? In the medieval world, faith was just ticking the boxes, agreeing to a statement. Is that what faith is about? Just being able to agree to the creed? No, what faith is about in Luke 7 and of course elsewhere in the New Testament is that faith is about trusting in a word of promise. If you don't have a promise, a word of promise, you can't have trust or faith growing or present. If you want to be a little bit technical, uh, faith is the ontological inability of sinners to achieve their salvation. You can't do anything. You've just got to take someone else's word for it. Or as Paul explains uh, a little bit more detail in Romans 10, Reading from verse 14. How then can they call on the one that they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites, we read in verse 16, accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Their words have gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What is faith? Faith is believing in a promise. It's hearing a word and accepting the word. Anyone can have faith. You've just got to hear the word first and put your trust in that promise. Blessed are those who hear, blessed are those who believe, who never see, but just hear. We learn from John's Gospel. Anyone can have faith. Only, of course, if they've first been presented with a word of promise. Friends, this great Reformation truth that we're justified by faith alone is a wonderful gift to us and the church. Because if you believe in faith 
alone, then today you can rejoice. Don't worry, be happy. Literally, faith, if you've accepted God's gift by faith alone, puts aside your anxieties, the pressures, the insecurities and, uh, and worries. As Luther says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It makes men glad and bold and happy. Or elsewhere, Luther says, there's only one article and one rule of theology, and this is true faith or trust in Christ. This article has a good savour. For all who are afflicted, downcast, troubled or tempted, these are the ones who truly understand the gospel. If there are any in the room today who are afflicted, or downcast, or troubled, or tempted, then the fact that we receive grace by faith <coughs> is wonderful news for your life. What should we do with this message? Number one, rejoice in the Lord. And number two, what do we take away from this sermon? Friends, we need to preach the word. If faith comes from hearing, then we need to be the people who are passing on the word so that other people can hear and thereby have faith and thereby, in Luther's language, be glad and bold and happy. We, friends, need to be teaching God's promises to people. We need to be expounding the scriptures to people. We need to be highlighting not what we should see as Christians, but what we should hear as Christians. Words trump visuals in the economy of salvation. And whether you're not yet a Christian or whether you're a dry bones kind of Christian, you've heard it all before, you've seen it all before, the word is for you so that you might grow up in faith. The centurion learnt a great lesson about Christ's gift, that through faith, Christ would even cross boundaries and give this wonderful gift of healing to his servant. He understood, the centurion understood, that faith is responsive to Christ's words. No wonder in the paragraph before uh, chapter 7, Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not want to do what I say? It's for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. When we preach the word, you and I have a decision to make. 
Are we going to trust those words and build our lives and ministries on them? This year you hear a lot of people saying that the Reformation is over. And partly because the Roman Catholics and Lutherans, amongst others, have made a number of doctrinal agreements in the last few years uh, explaining how their positions on various doctrines now converge. And you'll read statements that say uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, for example, both believe in justification by faith. And I think even at the end of last year, the Pope made this very comment that we now all agree in justification by faith but what wasn't said and needs to be said is not just that we're justified by faith it's just that we're justified by faith alone roman catholics in the medieval world believed in justification by faith but they said you're justified by faith and love and good works we can all agree that we're justified by faith we need to keep reminding ourselves that we're justified by faith alone. And thereby we can rejoice, rejoicing in the Lord because the pressure's off. And thereby we can recommit ourselves to preach the word, the word alone that draws faith from our hearts as we cling fast to the promise that God has made. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Amen.